Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2. And we will be in Romans 6 a little bit today too, so you may want to put your bullets in there just to kind of get there quickly. Ephesians 2 and Romans 6. The theme of Ephesians is walking in the riches of his grace, and Paul has been laying out for us what those riches are, um, you know, because we need to understand that before we can learn to walk in them. Uh, But when we got to chapter 2, before Paul could move forward to give us the next blessing that we have in Christ, he needed to take us backward to who we were before we were in Christ. Uh, And we looked at that last week in verses 1 through 3. It wasn't pretty, right? I mean, it was, it was not pretty. All of us lived life on our own terms at some point, even if it meant crossing God's boundaries, <laughs> all the while thinking we were still good. And, and that put us under God's wrath. So the, the question, of course, is when we read the first three verses of chapter two, and you go, how, does that, how did we get from there to everything we've learned about in chapter one. You know, how did we get from such a bad place being, you know, children of wrath to the awesomeness of being, you know, adopted sons, you know, the awesomeness of being in Christ? Well, verse four tells us, God in his great love intervened and he raised us up with Jesus from the dead and gave us a seat of honor together with Jesus, our next blessings that we'll cover this morning. So chapter two, I'm going to read verses one through three, and then we'll pick up our study uh, for today in verses four through seven. Verse one, chapter two, and you has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, uh, wherein in those trespasses and sins, in time past, at some point you walked, lived your life according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, the mindset, the attitude that now works in the children of disobedience among whom also we all, every one of us, had our conversation, conducted our lives, ordered our lives at some point in times past in the desires of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And as a result, we were by nature, we budded and grew to become the children of wrath just like every other unbeliever, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins. He has quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you're saved. And he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. So, here we see how we got from verses one through three to all the blessings in chapter two. It says, but God, God intervened. Now, when we read in the end of chapter one, it talked about how uh, his prayer was that every one of us would understand that the same power that was in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in heavenly pla- at his own right hand, that same power is directed towards us. Now we're going to learn how we know that's true because he already directed it towards us when he saved us. Because it says that just like Jesus, we were dead. Now, unlike Jesus, he was dead because he laid his down his life for sin. We chose that. We chose spiritual death, uh, this position of being under God's wrath because we devoted ourselves to trespasses and sins. Like Jesus, when we were dead, we are also now, we required a spiritual, a supernatural intervention to bring us back to life. 
Now, unlike Jesus, we weren't granted the power to take up our lives again. Jesus said, I, I've been given this power of my Father to lay it down and to take it up. I didn't have the power to save myself. I didn't have the power to restore life to myself. So we needed Him to make us alive. Now, we need to remember that. Always remember that. I did not make the first move. I did not make the first move. God did. God uh, the Father sent the Son, and the Son willingly came to lay down His life for our sin. And then the Father accepted the Son's sacrifice and extended His hand to us and said, will you turn from being a child of disobedience? Will you let me bring you back to life, or will you remain dead? I was not out there. None of you were out there looking for God. None of us were out there going, you know, God, we've got this problem. You know, the problem is, is that we're sinners and we're separated from you. And here's a great plan. How about you become a man, live a perfect life that we couldn't live, uh, and then die the death that we deserve so that your perfect life could be attributed to us and we could be made righteous and, and our sin could be forgiven. I, that's a great idea, God. What do you, you want to buy in? Want to partner with us? That's not how it went. That's not how it went at all. It's not like God was like, well, you know, I've designed all these universes and I'm really excited about making this other one. And then all of a sudden we jumped in and the Lord's like, oh, wow, great idea, Will. That is not how it happened. God made the first move. And in doing all this and accomplishing all this for us, he extended his hand to us and said, will you find life? Will you take this life that I offer you? Will you let me bring you back to life or will you remain dead? Now, that's who intervened, but how could a perfect, holy, just God do that for us when we deserve wrath? It tells us, being rich in mercy. It says who is rich in mercy, but who is is a, a, a present participle, so it's but God being rich in mercy. In other words, it's a part of his being. It's, it's a part of God's nature that never changes. It's just who he is. Now, God is indeed angry at sin. I mean, don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. I don't care what a billboard says. God is always angry at sin. He's indeed angry at sin. He is antagonistic to everything evil, and he is willing to destroy it. But while that's a part of who God is, at the same time, he is also something else. He is rich in mercy. Rich means he has an abundance of it. He has more than enough. He is wealthy in mercy. Now, what's mercy. Well, here it means to show kindness or concern for someone in serious need. Whether they deserve it or not is absolutely irrelevant. It means you see somebody who is in serious need and your heart goes out to him. You want to help. That's mercy. That's mercy. And when we say that he's rich in that mercy, it means he's not just merciful. He's not just a nice guy. It means his mercy is so vast, it is so large, that he is always concerned for our serious need to be rescued from the wrath that we deserve. There never comes a point, there is nothing that you can do that can alter who God is. There's nothing that you can do, no matter what you've done, no matter how much wrath you've stored up, that he will not want to show kindness towards you because of your bad spot that you're in. He wants to show kindness to us always. He does not want to give anyone what they deserve. Now, why? 
Why is God so merciful toward us that he had to take action, that he had to intervene? It says, for, which means because of or on account of or in order to satisfy. God, who is, has tons of mercy, it's who he is, in order to satisfy his great love wherewith he loved us, he intervened. Why did God do this? Because he has a word great here means a strong, intense, a larger than life love for you. Now that word love, it's that word agape. You've heard it probably, you know, any, every time you've been to church, probably hear the word agape, 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 you know. It's a word that really the New Testament kind of coins or defines. It was around in Greek language prior to this, but the New Testament really gives it its meaning. It's God's a God kind of love. And, and the God kind of love is unconditional devotion. God is unconditionally devoted to you. Nothing about you makes, you makes him more devoted to you or less devoted to you at any point in time. He is always devoted to you. And so this love, is, it's, it's strong. This devotion, it's intense. It's larger than life. I love what Kenneth Weiss said about this love. He said, it speaks of a love that is called out of one's heart by, precious, by the preciousness of the one who's loved. It is a love that impels me or impels one to sacrifice oneself for the benefit of the object that is loved. Now, when we say that, you know, it speaks of a love that, that is called out of one's heart by the preciousness of the one who's loved. There are two ways that we could look at preciousness, of course. You know, uh, for example, um, there are things that we invest into that are very valuable. Um, please don't be offended if you have an apartment when I share this story. Um, I, I'm not saying I hate people who have apartments. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, or I'm not saying you're, you're unwise if you have one. That's not my point. I was raised up, though, um, in, in a Christian culture where, you know, you don't have debt, you know, and so, you know, when we were, me and Bev were dating, I was like, we are never going to live in an apartment, you know, I am not going to throw my money away into something that's not an investment, you know, and so, you know, when we turned 22, you know, and got married, and, and, uh, and, and we got an apartment because we were poor, <laughs> and that's how you get started, right, you know, and, uh, and then we, after that, we graduated up to, a, you know, we rented out a house, you know, and I tell you, every time I wrote that check, I would even tell it sometimes as I was writing to Bev, I feel like I'm lighting my money on fire, you know? She laughs because she remembers. <laughs> every time, I'm like, I might as well just light it on fire and throw it in the toilet, you know? And, uh, and because it was like there was no return, you know? It's someone else's property, you know? And so when we bought our first home, you know, my, my parents uh, and, and my grandparents had helped us put the down payment down and stuff, and, uh, and, and we were able to buy our first home, you know? And... Um, you know, every time, it was different when I wrote that check because I knew I was getting back investment. It was, there was a preciousness to it. I could care less about that apartment or that house or whatever because it wasn't mine, you know, but there was a preciousness to it. So some things have preciousness or because they have value, right? That's not what I'm talking about here. That's not the preciousness that's described here. The preciousness that's described here is I have a little cabinet in my desk at home. And if you were to open that little cabinet, likely things would spill out uh, because I just kind of toss stuff in there. You would probably think, what in the world is this guy doing keeping this in his cabinet, in a cabinet? Why would anyone keep any of these things? Because you want to know what's in there? 
little wrist wrappers that aren't even labeled because that was my son's baseball game when he was in a, spe- you know, it was a special game or something or, you know, a recital, a dance recital that you bought a ticket and that's how they, you were able to stay in, you know. Those things in and of themselves, like there's no intrinsic value in those things, but they are some of the most precious things in my possession. The preciousness is because I've, they're precious to me, not because of anything they necessarily bring value to me. That's the preciousness that's described here. That's the love that's described here. We have such incredible value to God. Not because, you know, you know it's not like, not like, you know, I was walking around and the Lord's like, oh man, like if the devil gets will, you know, we're, we're gonna be a mess. Like we need to get this guy. You know, if we don't, we're losing, you know? You know, it's, you know, it's not like the Lord's up in heaven and he's like, you know, you know, you know, Michael, you're great, but if we don't get will up here, heaven's just not gonna be heaven. No, you know, like I, I'm not gonna get there and everyone's gonna go, oh, now it's a good time, you know? You know, I mean, all these other people, Job and Daniel or whatever, you know, you know, now Will's here. Now heaven's like has value to it. That's not it. The, the value is because he has decided you're precious to him. I don't add anything to him, but he's decided I'm precious. Why did God do this? Because he... He values us. He set this great love on us, this massive, intense love on us that that would not be satisfied leaving us where we were. It would not be satisfied leaving us where we were. That intense, never-wavering, massive-sized love said no. No. Verses one through three is how it is, but no. I don't want them to experience wrath. I will allow something to happen to me instead so that they can be rescued. They are that precious to me. Isn't that awesome? Romans 5.8 is, is my, I know I say, oh, I like this verse a lot. This is one of my favorite verses. Romans 5.8 is my favorite verse in the whole Bible. And the two verses that come right before it explain Romans 5, 6, for when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For, well, scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commends his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you realize how much God loves you? Do you realize how much God loves you? Do you know that that love is intense, never wavering, and it's massive in size toward you? Do you realize that that kind of devotion can only be measured by looking at the cross? You know, when we struggle with believing that God loves us like this, it's usually because we don't understand just how bad our situation was before we knew him. Because when I understand just how much I deserve wrath, you know, just how much I have disobeyed God, how much I've devoted my life to that which destroys everything he loves, well, then the cross is more than enough to prove it, right? You know, 
I have lots of struggles and lots of faults, um, but generally speaking, I'm not a complainer. But I'm human, and we all get to places where we're just like, ooh, this stinks. Like, you just, you just want to, like, just whine, you know? You just want to, like, complain. And it's hard because for me to do it because when I start doing that, I immediately comes to my mind is Jesus hanging on that, that tree, that cross. And I think to myself, oh, back up a step, Will. That's where I should have been. And I'm not there. In fact... I've been given so much more. Now, when did God do this? When did he intervene? Verse 5, even when. So this God who, who, has, who just is merciful, and he's, he's rich in it, because he had this intense love that, that would not be satisfied leaving us where we were, when did he act? When we were, even when we were dead in, uh, dead in sins, but the word there is actually that word trespasses. Even when we were dead in the trespasses, you know, even while we were presently existing, living for ourselves, even if it meant it, it crossing God's boundaries, that's when he loved us with this kind of love. God did not love us because he knew we would turn from sin and receive his gift. That is not why he loved us. You know, God didn't love us because he knew what we would be someday after we received him. God loved us at the very same time we were devoting our life to doing whatever we wanted, even if it meant we had to cross the boundaries he set for us. That's when he loved us like this. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this. Never, ever, Listen to the lies of the enemy who tells you that God loves you less now when you sin because you should know better as a believer. Do not ever listen to that lie because if God loved you this intensely without wavering when you devoted your life to sin, why would God love you less when you fail as his child now? That's a logical fallacy. It makes no sense to, to, to think that way. And yet I lived that way as a Christian for years. Don't listen to those lies. Now this kind of love, it would not leave us where we were in verses one through three. It would not leave us spiritually dead, a child of wrath destined for destruction. And so God directed his power towards us, just like it was when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father. And so beginning in the middle of verse 5 here, all the way through verse 7, we're going to see what God's power did, how it was directed towards us, and what it accomplished for us. So first off, it says that even when we were dead in, sin, in sins, in those trespasses, what did he do? What did God do? God intervened and do? It says he, number one, quickened us together with Christ. Now, we think of quicken, you know, or, you know, quicken your pace, you know, move speedy. That's not what this word means. To quicken means to restore life. And when we have it, this word here, it means to restore life alongside others. So you're not the only one being restored to life. Now, the other in this case is Jesus. He quickened us together with who? With Jesus. Now, 
Now, I do want to point out real quick, this is the first of three togethers with Jesus that Paul mentions here if you're taking notes. So, you know, if you want to go back, this is the first of three. So, the first one here, this making us alive together with Jesus, um, certainly we already know that the revival or the, you know, the restoring to life we experience is not physical life because we were physically alive still, right? This is spiritual life. We were spiritually dead, and this is the spiritual life that's being referred to. So, Certainly when we look at this, we go, wait a second, I wasn't spiritually revived at the same exact time Jesus was physically resurrected, right? So that that can't be what Paul's talking about here. So this togetherness has to be something else, right? This togetherness, therefore, has to do with Jesus' position when he rose from the dead. What was Jesus' position or standing before the Father when he at his resurrection when he rose from the dead. Well, Paul assumes we know it here in Ephesians because he just tells us it happened. So, what was Jesus's position when he rose from the dead? Well, we have to go to Romans 6. So, turn to Romans 6 and we'll look at it here. What was different about Jesus after he rose from the dead than before he did. You know, what, what, was, what were the differences? What was unique about his standing before the Father, his position before the Father, when he rose from the dead? Well, in Romans 6, verses uh, 5 through 10, it describes some of the things that Paul's referencing here in Ephesians. Paul already establishes in verse 4 that just as Christ was raised up from the dead, that we have, you know, we, we should walk in a, a new kind of life. Verse 5 says, for if, which should be translated since, for since we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. It's a fact. So whatever Jesus' position is in the resurrection, that's our position now, now that we're saved. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So, the the first thing about Christ's position when he rose from the dead was this position was one in which sin had no more claim on him. Sin had no more claim on him. Now, did sin ever have a legitimate claim on Jesus? Well, no, he never sinned, right? So sin never had a legitimate claim on Jesus, but what did Jesus do? He took our sin upon him. He bore our iniquities. He bore all of our sin. So, you know, when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was experiencing that that sense of all the wrath that we deserve being put upon him, separated from the Father there on the cross. So Jesus took it upon him. It didn't have a, a natural claim on him, but he took it upon himself, that all changed the moment he rose from the dead. It had no more claim on him. Even though he took all of our sin, had no more claim on him. Then secondly, verse 9, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dies no more, death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he lives, he lives unto God. So the second thing about his position that was different is it was one in which death had no power over him anymore. This text is is so, so powerful because when we translate that now to, okay, how does that relate to me since I'm raised, you know, I've made, I'm restored to life together with Jesus. 
How does that relate to me? Well, since I am made alive together with Jesus, this is my standing. Number one, sin has no more claim on me. None. Nada. It has zero claim on me, and it never can have a claim on me again. Nothing else ever has to be done to atone for anything I do. Every sin, past, present, and future in my life, was taken care of on the cross. I am truly free from sin's guilt and from its power. That's a cool blessing, isn't it? That's your position in Christ right now. Sin has no claim on you. Now, I don't know about you, but in my younger Christian life, I didn't understand that principle. And so, how I handled my sin was not in the biblical way, but I would get on that works treadmill again. You know, the Lord would be like, Will, you come to me. Come, re- come, let's reason together. You know, your sins be as scarlet, they'd be as, be as white as snow. And I'd be like, no, no, I, I can't read my Bible. I can't pray to you yet, God. I need, I need to fix this first. You know, right? And then you get on the works treadmill. You're like, all right, all right, all right. You know? And, and, and then what happens well, you don't do very well, right? You know, most of us are, 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 you know, we're not good treadmill runners, right? That's the whole reason Jesus had to come and die for us in the first place. So, so we get on the treadmill, you know, we're running, we're running, you know, the, the Peloton's guy's going, you can do it, you can do it. And then all of a sudden we're like, squirrel, you know, and we jump off and we go do this, you know? being silly, but, you know, that's what happens, right? You know, we, we just go after our own thing, and then we're right back again. And then we're in this like vicious cycle. And so what do we, we never read our Bible. We never pray. Or we don't go to church. Or, or you know, we don't, we don't encourage others. I can't share my faith today because, man, I, I woke up carnal this morning. You know, and, and we, do, we miss out on all that God has for us. So we think that somehow we got to, I got to atone for what, what I've done. There is nothing that needs to be done to atone for your sin. It's already been finished. Sin has no claim on you anymore. Has None. That's what I say. I say when the enemy comes to you and he starts condemning, you just say, take it up with my lawyer. <laughs> my little children, these things are written unto you that you sin not. Okay, grace is not a license to sin. That's how Romans 6 starts. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. That's a legal term. Take it up with my attorney because he's a good one, man. And not only is he, he's my attorney, he's the one who took my place for everything I deserve. You have no claim on me if somehow sin could have a claim on me still, it'd be double jeopardy. God would not be just. That's what I love about Romans chapter three, where it says that through the cross and through our faith in Christ that we can be saved, it means that God can be just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. If sin still has a claim on me, then God can't be just. Sin has no claim on me anymore. Secondly, Death has no power over me anymore. That word dominion, it means to exercise influence upon someone because you have power over that person. We already read in in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 last week that when we chose to devote ourselves to the trespasses and the sins, that we came under the influence of the world and we came under the influence of Satan, right? Because you and I, if we're in Christ, because we've been made alive, restored to life together with Jesus in the same position he's in, I am no longer powerless to yield to the influence of Satan and the world anymore. It has no dominion over me. 
In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, uh, the writer there explains when he, when he says, you know, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same, the incarnation. That through the, his death, the incarnation is life, the cross is death, that through his death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver, rescue, save them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I can't even fathom what it would be like going through life thinking, when I die, that's it. Like, to be frank, I I get it. Like, I get why you might do this or that. Because if this is it, right, I I get it. Why would you sacrifice? I mean, why would you do something at cost to yourself? You only have one life to live, and it's short. That's why Paul the Apostle said, if the resurrection is not true, I'll give you a little paraphrase here. It may not be totally accurate. He said, we're the dumbest people on the earth. (laughs) Right? We of all men are most miserable. If it's not true, we of all men are most miserable. We're the dumbest people on the earth because we're living for something that doesn't exist. And, And not only that, we're counting on that this life is a short one and is not anywhere near way as much as the eternal one, and we're wasting it. And so he says, if it's not true, let us eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. But it is true. And so no longer, hear this, no longer do you and I need to live life like, man, I need to do whatever I want while there's still time, while I'm still living. We don't have to live like that. You say, well, I want to experience this. Got all eternity, man. Seriously, you know? Like you think, man, this season in my life stinks. Like I, I want to be out of this one and into a better one, you know? Well, you'll get, you will. You'll get there eventually. We don't have to have that compelling now because we don't live in bondage to death anymore. It has no hold on us. I'm going to live forever with Jesus. And Psalm 1611 says that his right hand are pleasures evermore. Isn't that cool? I mean, think about that. He didn't say at his right hand is, you know, um, you know, righteousness and, you know, and, 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 you know, good society. Like he said, at his right hand are pleasures. I mean, I don't know what you think of when you think of delightful things. Like, you know, I think, I think a man up, you know, I'm like, you know, I think of sitting around the fire and eating really yummy food and telling stories and laughing, you know, and, and, and sometimes crying together, you know, and, and, and just life on a different level, right? That's what I think of. And that doesn't sound so bad, does it? Isn't that exciting? Pleasures evermore. You can almost sense Paul's excitement as he's explaining these truths because, you know, he's kind of got this run-on sentence where he keeps interrupting himself and interjecting thoughts into the middle of his sentences, and that's what he does here. You know, what did God's power accomplish for us? Number one, it made us alive with Jesus. Number two, it rescued us. He says, by grace you are saved. You know, what, did, what did God do? God in his great love for us, even when we were dead in, in, in the trespasses, he made us alive together, restored us to life together with Christ, and by grace you're saved. 
He's like, he rescued you completely. That's what that means. Grace means God's unmerited favor lavished upon the infinitely ill-deserving. Grace was the one thing I had the hardest time understanding. God's mercy wouldn't leave us where we were, and I get that. You know, God's, man, you're in a bad spot, Will. Like, you're messed up. You know, I, I, I want to help. You look like you need help. I get that. I can, I can get that. Even God's love, you know, God's love, God's mercy wouldn't leave us where we were. God's love did something about it, even though it cost him a ton. I can get that because he's God, right? But this third thing, this grace, God's grace, God's grace made the result beyond anything we could have dreamed up. And that's the part I would struggle with. You know, as a a younger believer, I struggle with that. You know, I would think, well, okay, so here's so-and-so, and, and, you know, I totally get, like, the whole mansion thing and, like, glory and pleasures evermore and all that stuff for them. Like, me, I just, you know, you're just, you're just like, well, I I love you, I'll let you in, you know. You know, but I never thought about, like, God's blessings in my life. I could never even imagine that they would be for me. But God... He didn't just not give us what we deserve. He didn't just act on our behalf because he loved us, but he lavished upon us something awesome. By grace, you are saved. There is no way to accurately translate this into English because our language just doesn't work that way. But the best way I could say it, it means you presently exist as having been completely rescued. Uh, What does that mean? The concept here is that Whatever your now is in Christ, that now always exists as someone who's already been completely rescued. So your now that was, you know, 30 seconds ago when I started saying that, you were completely rescued. Your now now is rescued, and your now in five seconds will be completely rescued as well. And five minutes from now, and five hours from now, and five days from now, and five years from now, if the Lord tarries, you will still be completely rescued. Someone who exists as having been completely rescued. From the moment you first got saved, you existed as completely rescued, and that now was the next now, and the next now, and the next now, and every now that will exist for all eternity. Amen. Yeah! <laughs> Amen. Because that's awesome. You exist as completely rescued Always. Whatever your now is, you're completely rescued because you're in Christ. That's what it means. By grace, you are saved. And this wonderful concept of being restored to life together with Jesus is our present standing because our rescue is not something that's still in transit. It's done. It's finished. It's 100% of who you are in Christ now and every now after now. And so I ask you this morning, do you believe that? It takes some faith, doesn't it? Because you think, I know me right now. I know what I might be five minutes from now. I'm pretty convinced if you catch me five hours from now, you will not like the me you see. (laughs) Because four hours before now was now, now was not good. When I first woke up, now was bad. Thankfully, it doesn't depend upon that. We look to what he says, not how we feel. Do you believe it? Because it's true. And there's more. Verse six, I gotta hurry. Not only has he done this, not only has he 
His, what his power did for us, not only did it accomplish it, it made us, restored us to life together with Jesus. It completely rescued us. Number three, it raised us and seated us with Jesus. And he has raised us up together. In addition to these other two things, it has thirdly raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Jesus. So here are the other two togethers. We've been raised together with Jesus. Romans 6.10 said the same exact thing. It says, for in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he lives, he lives unto God. So Jesus wasn't just restored to life, but he was restored to a quality of life that pleased the Father. We have been restored to life, to a position raised up with Jesus, to, that is completely different from when we were spiritually dead. Whereas we were spiritually dead before, we are now spiritually alive in Christ. And we can devote our lives to the things that please God. We can live for him from now on just like Jesus will for all eternity. We can do that. We aren't just spiritually reanimated not biologically just alive, but we have life on a different level. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I am come that you might have life, and that what? More abundantly. More abundantly means life different than everyone else has it. Life on a different level. That is our heritage since we're in Christ. And in addition to that, we were made to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This third together is that, you know, it means to be enthroned alongside. We who were God's enemies have been enthroned alongside, uh, uh, enthroned alongside his dear son. Now, that does raise a good question. Why are we still here? This does not look like the right hand of the Father. Well, when Jesus rescued you and me, He sent us out. He didn't take us home. He sent us out as his ambassador. You, check this out, you are a royal representative of heaven sent to invite others to experience this awesome grace so that they too can sit in that place of honor. That's a privilege. And so while we're still here, we need to remember where our home really is and live accordingly. Colossians 3.1 If you then be risen with Christ, which should be translated since you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's how we're supposed to, our mindset, you know? This is my new place. The world isn't my home. God's wrath is no longer my portion. My place is in Christ at Jesus' side, who is at the right hand of the Father, where blessings just keep coming for all eternity, which is what verse 7 says. The fourth thing that his power accomplished in us, he, he uh, raised us up, made it, restored us to life together with Jesus. He completely rescued us. He raised us up and enthroned us together with Jesus. And then number four, he gave us an eternal future with that power. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace towards us through Christ Jesus. Why did God put us in Christ? Because what we experience in Christ now is just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the tip of the iceberg. The phrase ages to come, it means the ages of time that are rolling in, one after another for all eternity. So, this ages to come is every time period that comes after the present age of the church. So this includes the great tribulation when we're 
celebrating the marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus in heaven. It includes the millennial kingdom where we're ruling and reigning with Christ. And then it includes however God's going to measure time periods in eternity. I don't know what that is. Bible doesn't tell us. So uh, however he's going to measure time periods in eternity, it includes it. And during all of those times, all of those future times, God has a plan, a purpose for us. It says that he might show, word there means to demonstrate, display, cause something to be known or understood. That he might reveal to us, show us, display to us, demonstrate to us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us, which is only possible through Christ Jesus. Exceeding. The word exceeding means whatever you think is what the target is, aim way farther. It means something extraordinary, extreme, supreme. It's a point way beyond what is implied or expected. The riches of God's grace, the big amount of grace, the wealth, the abundance of grace has, how much you think he has, keep going. Keep going. Whatever you can comprehend that he has, wants to just the benefits he wants to load upon us in his grace, keep going. Keep going. Throw, throw, that, throw that ball way further if you want to hit the target. And how will that grace be revealed? It says, in his kindness toward us. The word kindness here is a very tangible kindness. It means to provide something beneficial for someone as an act of kindness. So it's not just something nice you say or, you know, that you're nice in general. It's a tangible benefit that comes out of the motive of niceness, kindness, you know. I often wonder what exactly the eternal state will be like, you know. And we, you know, you joke all the time, you know, my, my grandfather went home to be with the Lord Monday and you think, hey, he's playing tennis up there. He loved playing tennis, you know. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, that'd be cool, but I, I don't really know. The Bible doesn't say there's tennis, you know. I'm not saying there's not. I'm just saying I don't know. I often wonder, you know, you wonder about those things. I wonder exactly what the eternal state will be like. And while I cannot give you exact details, because the Bible doesn't give us all the details, I can tell you this. It will not just be Jesus coming by every few days to pat you on the head. It's not going to be just Jesus coming by and going, hey, well, it's good to see you. You know, I know it's been a few days, but there's like 30 billion people here, so, you know. So, love you, man. Got to get the next person, you know. See you in a few days, you know. That is, that's not it. I know that. I know, based on what Paul says here, that when eternity begins... Whatever, whatever that looks like. You know, we have the great tribulation. We've got the marriage stuff of the Lamb. I know that. You know, a huge festival. Of, you know, it's man up on steroids, you know, and, and much more presentable. Uh, <laughs> much more presentable and probably smelling better too. Uh, um, and then the ruling and reigning with Christ. I mean, we understand that too, right? You know, so, so it's where we go beyond there. So when we get to eternity, when eternity begins, I know this. The Lord's going to say, check this out. And then, bam. <laughs> We're going to experience a, a, a jaw drop moment where God gives us some new benefit that just blows us away. And we'll be like, whoa. And then, however God measures time periods in eternity, when that time period ends, God's going to turn a page on his grace to, you know, to start a new time period, and he's going to say, hey, you thought that was good. Check this out. And then our jaw will drop again. And that will repeat for all eternity. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> God's grace towards us for all eternity will be tangible. It will be something new and good that we will experience over and over and over again. And that is God's end game for making us in Christ. That's why we experience these three togethers with Christ, because this is the end game God is leading us to. And so, if you want to put it in perspective, think of this. Just as God the Father and God the Son experienced a tangible love that could be experienced in all of eternity past, we know this because God is love. He can't be love if there's no object of his love. We know that Christ is his beloved son, right? His, his, his unique beloved son, the one who's, who's existed from all eternity and has always experienced the Father's love. So whatever that tangible experience that God the Father and God the Son had together for all eternity past, we get to join in that for all eternity future. That doesn't sound so bad, does it? <laughs> Well, as the worship team comes up to close us out, if that still may be too intangible for you, let me share this with you. When we consider Jesus' joy in just the small glimpse that we get of his relationship with the Father in the Gospels, when he was on the earth and he was ministering here for those three years, and the the small glimpse we get of his relationship with his father and how good that was. Don't you think it's worth trusting the goodness of what God promises for us? Like, do we ever find a moment, you know, where Jesus is kind of moping and the disciples are like, what's wrong, Jesus? And he's like, my dad. Dad, you know. He wants me to do this. And, you know, that was my plan, you know. I, my weekend, I was planning on doing this, you know. And, like, yeah, Peter's like, I've had a dad too. I understand Jesus. I know how they can be, you know. Like, we don't see any of that in his interactions with his father. Like, all of his interactions with his father are joy-filled, aren't they? Like, they're all just joy-filled. Like, he's so excited to talk to his father. Like, the interaction is intimate, right? You know, like, there's no unhappiness or dissatisfaction or grumbling or anything like that. And so, if you can't picture what it was like for Jesus and the Father in eternity past, or if that's too intangible for you, then read the Gospels and look for the interactions that Jesus has with his Father, and that should be enough to trust the goodness of what God promises for you too. Amen? <laughs> Listen, whatever you can devote your life to here cannot be compared to what God promises to those who are in Christ. And whatever you miss out on here for following Jesus is worth what's coming. That's why Paul says, we do not look in the things that are seen, but in the things that are unseen. For the things that are you know, seen, they cannot be compared with the eternal weight of glory that shall be revealed. He says, that's why we don't faint. That's why we keep going. Now, Paul did skip an important part of the process of salvation in his explanation in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Because the question is, did God just swoop down and just do this for everybody? I mean, it was just, you know, all right, everybody's saved you know? Or do we have to do something to experience it? And, and if we do, what is it? And, and how does that change happen? So to find that out, you got to come back next week. So we'll do verses 8 through 10 next week. God willing, let's all stand. Lord, you know our parents are simply dust and you loved us anyway. You say, it says that like a father pities his son, Lord, you, you have that compassion, Lord, towards us those that fear you. And so here we are, Lord, we know 
Many of us know that there's going to probably be a now in the future where we are not, <laughs> not looking good. And there are probably times where we'll be disobeying you or displeasing you or missing your heart. There'll be some way that we fall short. So Lord, we thank you that you have, in your great love for us, you exercised your power towards us and that you raised us up with Jesus, that you restored us to life with Jesus and you enthroned us together with him. Thank you that you've got a whole eternity of good things waiting for us. And Lord, that we are always existing as completely rescued. Help us to cling to those truths this morning, to not doubt your love. And I pray for everyone right now who struggles with that. Lord, that these truths would be driven home to their heart. And Lord, that they would embrace them. Help us to embrace these things by faith, to mix these true words with faith. Lord, that they might affect how we live. In Jesus' name, amen.